Okay, are we ready to get started? Turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be beginning with verse 14. Um, this will be, I'm hoping to wrap up this message concerning the church at Pergamos today. This is part 3. Um, there's just so much in here, not only from the Scriptures, but from the corridors of history that reveal the wonders of God's Word and very sobering truth. I'm going to be gone for the next two Sundays, so you'll get a break from me. Uh, it would be good for the elders to teach again. and I'll come back uh, in May and we'll pick up where we left off. And this may take years to complete this book. And or the Lord may come back for us before we're done. I'm okay with that. Amen. We get to uh, Revelation chapter 4. And John is sitting there and he hears a voice like a trumpet says, Come up hither. And then he's gone. Maybe, maybe, maybe when we're preaching that, one morning, that's what the Lord will say to us. Come up hither and it'll be over. It'll be over. But last week, um, after some introductory material a few weeks ago concerning the church at Pergamos and where Pergamos was and what took place there and how it represented uh, uh, a key locale in the history of that spirit of Babylonian paganism, we went into... Uh, the first couple of verses about that sharp sword coming out of the mouth of Christ, His Word, how important that is. We talked about how the sin of Pergamos is the sin of toleration. You know, toleration is the battle cry today in America. But when it comes to God's truth, to tolerate sin, to tolerate wickedness is an abomination to God. It's what got Israel into trouble time and time again. It's what leads to the outright proclamation of sin and untruth. I was thinking this morning, Abraham Lincoln, one of our presidents, and this certainly wasn't uh, talked about in this movie that came out recently, but he was quoted as saying that the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation becomes the philosophy of government in the next. And we see the fruit of that today. And I was thinking about the church. And in that same fashion, when the church tolerates sin in one generation, that sin is actually preached as God's truth in the next generation. So what is tolerated now becomes doctrine in the next generation. The churches in America tolerated the very sin that's being preached today. That's why, quote-unquote, pastors and congregations literally believe that the Bible leaves room for homosexual marriage or abortions. That's why young girls who get pregnant at Liberty University take no thought of going down to the local abortuary and having their children aborted and keep continue to live as if they're just good religious Christians. The things that were tolerated years ago are now accepted and preached. And we'll see that pattern here. What's tolerated at Pergamos, if you go on and read the letter to the church at Thyatira, is actually being taught in that church. So it's another dangerous crossroads. There's a dangerous point on the downward spiral to apostasy that happens when a church loses its zeal. We saw that at Ephesus. Sometimes God will send persecution to wake the church up. But another dangerous crossroads is that toleration. And it becomes even more difficult to return to the simplicity of New Testament faith when sin is tolerated. 
And yet I differentiated between the they, the remnant body at Pergamos, and the them, those that were in the church, not necessarily teaching these things at this point, but believing these things and sowing seeds. Okay? Jesus wrote to those that remnant body and commended them for holding fast His name and His faith. We talked about it's the faith of Christ that we live by, not our faith, but the faith of Christ. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And Then we talked about Antipas, the Lord's faithful martyr, a seemingly obscure person who, according to tradition, stood alone against these influences. We talked about how the Pergamos remnant held fast to Christ's name, but they did it in a dissimulated way, not openly. We talked about how the sin of toleration germinates in the soil of dissimulated love planted by fear, how it germinates in the soil of no discernment planted by failure to study God's Word. And I concluded by exhorting the body of Christ that only by using God's Word and proclaiming it without fear in the open can we avoid the sin of Pergamos' remnant which was tolerance. Now let's look a little more deeply into what was being tolerated at Pergamos. Verse 14 and 15. But I have a few things against thee, because thou, the believing remnant, hast there them, the false converts, that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things committed un- sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them, false converts, false teachers, that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, verse 16, come unto thee, the remnant, and will fight against them, the bad seed, with the sword of my mouth. What was being tolerated? Two things were being tolerated at Pergamos by those that should have known better. Number one, it was the doctrine or the teaching of Balaam. Okay? That word doctrine in a general sense, according to Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which is kind of a foundation for the American English language, in a general sense means teaching. The teaching, the methods, the example of Balaam, and... The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapters 22 through 24 and then on to 25 and later some more insight is shared about that story in chapter 31 is the recap of what transpired with God's people Israel as they were in the plains of Moab preparing to go into the promised land. And it involved a character named Balaam. Balaam is the perennial false teacher. And he's used as the ultimate example of what a false teacher is in the New Testament. Not because he preached blatant untruth, but because he preached God's truth, but didn't believe it. Twisted it. Therefore, he's the perennial false teacher. A Bible-thumping fundamentalist, per se, who died and went to hell. It's possible. You see, Balaam's messages to Israel, he couldn't help but bless them, contained some very important messianic prophecies. 
In Numbers chapter 24, we see that Messiah has to come twice. I don't understand why the Jews can't see that in their Torah. That a star would come from Jacob, comma, the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, and a scepter would arise out of Israel, the second coming, separated in the language. Clearly two comings. These very important passages about how God is not a man and need not repent as a man repents. All of these important passages about God that describe His character, that Israel is blessed and whosoever blesses Israel shall be blessed and whosoever curses Israel shall be cursed. A reaffirmation of that Abrahamic covenant. All these things at the mouth of a perennial false teacher. But let's turn to Numbers 22 and I want to, I want to look a minute at this story. I want to summarize it for you so we can get a better understanding of what is being spoken here to the church at Pergamos. Balaam was a prophet. Israel was dwelling in the plains of Moab near Jericho. And Balak, the king of the Moabites, was concerned. And he consulted with the elders of Midian. You remember, Midian is where Moses' father-in-law was from. They were allies, per se, of Israel. Not enemies. But Balak consulted with these elders... And they decided to send for Balaam, this prophet, and get him, if they could get him to curse Israel, then perhaps their enemy or or this concern would go away. So it tells us that these elders were sent, in verse 7 of chapter 22, uh, with the rewards of divination in their hand. Rewards, money, profit. And they came to Balaam and they spoke unto him the words of Balak. Now listen, look, look at verse 12. And this is what God... Balaam consulted God about what to do. And this is what God said. Number one, do not go with them. Number two, you do not curse the people. Number three, they are blessed. So God gave Balaam a three-point sermon. Three-point outline. Now, when a lot of people read this story, including people who claim to be biblical scholars, they just can't understand what the sin of Balaam is. And I've heard it said that maybe this guy got the wrong end of the deal, or perhaps, you know, this is an issue of God's directive will versus His permissive will and all of this theological doublespeak and nonsense. But if you look here, you'll see... His sin is very clear, and it's a sin that's prevalent behind the pulpits in America today. God gave Balaam a three-point outline. Go down to verse 18. And Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Sounds great. You can give me all the money in the world, but I can only do, I can only preach what God tells me to preach. Oh, wow, that's great. Verse 13. I'm sorry. Balaam rose up in the morning and said unto the princes of Balak, Get you to your land, for the Lord refuses to let me have leave to go with you. So God gave Balaam a three-point outline. The next verse, he goes to the elders of Midian and he only gives one point. Two-thirds of God's message is left out. God's not going to let me go with you. He didn't tell them that Israel's not cursed, they're blessed. Okay? He did not tell them, I can't curse them for that reason. He left out two-thirds of God's revelation. Isn't that what the perennial false teacher does? He knows how to speak truth that tickles the ears and sounds good, but it's, it's what he doesn't say that is the problem. And then down here, 
You know, Balaam says this about, you can give me all the money in the world. Then he says in verse 19, but wait here tonight. I'll go, I'll go back to the Lord and see if He'll see what He has to say to me. This verse 19 proves that what Balaam has said in verse 18 about not taking any money is not what he really thinks. It's not what his heart is. Balaam said, let me go pray to the Lord. But the Lord had already spoken. Why did he need to pray? We talk about praying for these things and seeking an answer from the Lord just like the evolutionary scientists do with the carbon-14 dating method. One of the most unreliable methods of dating anything that exists. The reason why is because you can get... You can read something a thousand different times and get a thousand different ages. And what the carbon-14 scientist does is he tests the age of something as many times as it takes to get the preconceived, presupposed date to prove his theories. That's what the false teacher does. He keeps going back to the Lord, back to the Lord, back to the Lord, back to the Scriptures, back to the Scriptures, until he gets the revelation he wants. That's why preachers behind these pulpits have to use umpteen numbers of Bible versions. One here, one here, one here, one there. Until they get the reading that they want. Modeled after this Old Testament example. So, Balaam went back to God. God said in verse 20, If the men come to call you, then rise up and go with them. But the word which I say unto thee, that shalt thou do. And look at verse 21. And Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his ass. What did God say? If the men come to call you, then you go. What did Balaam do the next morning? Did anybody come to call him? No, he got up and went. Disobeyed God, left out two-thirds of God's Word, and then clearly went against, in a very subtle fashion, what God said. Isn't that what a false teacher does? Balaam just went. And that's why God's anger was kindled in verse 22, because he went. And then that ass opened its mouth. And because that ass spoke God's word, Balaam's life was spared. Later on, we'll see, he says to the people of Midian, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord. And he speaks blessing upon Israel. Well, at this point, he can't help but speak God's truth, but he hates it. He doesn't believe what he is speaking. Spoke the right way, but went astray. His profession had nothing to do with his real beliefs. Thereafter, he preached what God commanded him to preach, but he didn't believe it. And the proof is what happened in Israel after he left. I wish I could get into this in more depth. Chapter 25, immediately after this story of Balaam, Balaam disappears from the scene and it says that Israel, in verse chapter 25, abode in Shittim and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. And the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. We think, what a wicked thing. Balaam's off the scene. This must be a different story. This must have to do with something else. It's not really until Numbers chapter 31 that you understand or it is revealed that Israel committed these whoredoms as a result of the counsel of Balaam to the Midianites. Numbers chapter 31, 16. Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the 
counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So apparently Balaam gave counsel when he saw that he could not curse Israel and he despised them. And he had the rewards of divination in his hand. He had the prophet. He was hired to curse Israel. Couldn't do it. He figured, this is how I can earn my keep. This is how I can achieve my ends in ministry. I'll just counsel the elders of Midian to tempt the people of Israel with their idolatry and their wickedness. And if they succumb, there's no way God will bless them. He will curse them because God can't tolerate sin. This is how you get to Israel. Well, Balaam thought, forgot about the greater truth of God's atonement, the greater truth of that Abrahamic covenant, the greater truth that God always has a faithful remnant. And he ultimately failed in his endeavor. Later, when Moses and the faithful remnant in Israel rose up to deal with this problem, they attacked the Midianites and Balaam was killed in battle. And then you don't hear about him ever again until the New Testament. In books in the New Testament that deal specifically with false teachers, this name Balaam shows up again. Shows up in Jude, 2 Peter, and here in the book of Revelation. A picture of a perennial false teacher, one of the most dangerous there is, one who can speak God's truth, but do it in a way, use it to manipulate in such a way that he achieves his own ends in ministry and entices God's people to sin. You know, a false teacher, a false prophet, and a true prophet of the Lord can have something in common. It is possible that true prophets and false prophets speak God's truth. They can have that in common. But the results of the speaking of that truth are not in common. Jeremiah speaks about God's prophets, how you discern between true prophets and false prophets. True prophets can be discerned Because as a result of their preaching, God's people repent and turn from their sins. False prophets, on the other hand, can speak, and sometimes it sounds good, or maybe we're so naive and unskillful in the Word, we can't hear the slight changes. Like what Satan did with Eve in the Garden of Eden, or what he did with Christ in the wilderness, by twisting Psalm 91. But the results of a false prophet are not that people repent and come to the Lord. It's that they dive farther into their apostasy. They justify their sin. And as Revelation here says, they commit spiritual fornication, idolatry. And that's what happened there in Israel. We see in chapter 25, if you go back, that uh, the people of Israel, the remnant were weeping before the Lord at the doors of the tabernacle. Moses, Aaron, and the elders weeping. What has happened? And in the sight of their weeping, an Israelite man brought a Midianitish woman unto his brethren. A religious spiritual orgy right there in front of God's people who were weeping. Then it says Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, was so angered, righteous anger, at this blasphemy against God that he took a javelin in the sight of Israel and he thrust that wicked man and that whorish woman threw right through their bellies in the presence of the Lord. And as a result, the plague that God had put upon the people, 24,000, Paul says that of that 24,000, 23,000 of them perished in a single day. That plague was stayed. And Phinehas and his descendants in the Levitical priesthood were blessed 
as a result of his zealousness for God's truth. That's how God dealt with that wickedness in the Old Testament. Now, a lot of people don't want to hear that. Oh, that's not my God. Well, of course it's not your God. Your God is the devil who shows himself as an angel of light. And the devil's the world's best at preaching love, love, love. And in therefore enticing you to sin. But that's how God dealt with it. And God rewarded those who took a strong stand. Willing to speak out when no one else would. And that's why the New Testament urges the church not to fight in the sense that Israel did as a nation and obeyed God's laws and His commands from a political perspective as judgment against nations. Not to fight with swords or javelins, but to fight with the sword of God's truth from a spiritual standpoint. And that requires taking a very hard and difficult stand and not budging. But this Balaam is the perennial false teacher. And it's helpful to kind of study his life because a lot of people can't understand what did he do wrong? He went, he spoke what God told him to about Israel, but he didn't give the whole truth. Not like Paul who told the Ephesian elders, for three years I have not ceased to preach and teach unto you the whole counsel of God. The problem with this Church today is that the entire counsel of God is not preached. We may talk about salvation and and the love of God, but we don't talk about His righteousness. If I were to stand and preach about the law and the righteousness of God, as I've done many times on a street corner, people will come up to me and say, your message is unbalanced, why aren't you preaching about the love of God? And then I'll stand there and preach the entire time about the love of God, and no one will ever come up to me and say, your preaching is unbalanced, why aren't you talking about the righteousness of God? Amazing! What Balaam's sin was is he left out God's Word and then he jumped the gun and was totally disobedient. And unless you're paying attention to what you read, you'll miss it. And then he enticed people to sin. The New Testament refers to him in three ways. In warning the church, in the New Testament, there is reference made in Jude 11 to the error of Balaam. In 2 Peter 2.15, the way of Balaam is mentioned. And here in Revelation 2.15, the doctrine of Balaam. So we need to be careful of his way, or his error, his way, and his doctrine. Now I'm just going to be extremely, I'm going to be in extreme summary fashion here so we can move on. The error of Balaam mentioned in Jude 11 is mentioned in connection with the way of Cain. The gainsaying of Korah, the one that tried to stand up against Moses and usurped the authority there uh, in, in, in the book of Numbers. The error of Balaam was ignoring God's clear revelation in favor of pragmatism. What he thought would work and achieve his ends. It seemed the practical thing to do because Cain was a farmer to offer up God vegetables from his garden. That's who I am. That's what I'm going to offer up despite the fact that God required a blood sacrifice. It seemed the practical thing for Korah and Dathan and Abira, Abiram as, as, as prominent members of Israel's uh, society to say, God can speak to us too. Why is it only Moses we're listening to? God told us this. It seemed practical. It seemed practical for Balaam to say the, certain, the things that God said to achieve a certain end because it would benefit him. But the error of Balaam is to ignore God's clear revelation in favor of pragmatism. Today the church says it's pragmatic for us to escape persecution or to escape revocation of tax exemption or just to be popular and to grow our 
congregations, it's practical for us to stay away from issues like abortion or homosexuality or sin. That's the error of Balaam. 2 Peter 2.15 talks about the way of Balaam who loved the wages of unrighteousness. The way of Balaam is a career in ministry instead of a call. How many in this country are in quote-unquote ministry and it is viewed and treated as if it's their career as opposed to a calling from God? Wicked. Loving the wages of unrighteousness. How many pastors won't preach the whole truth of God's counsel because they've got a nice compensation package from the church dependent upon the offering plate. They've got a benefit plan and a parsonage, health insurance, life insurance, all of these things. And if they were to speak God's whole counsel, perhaps some deacon or some personnel committee that member that controls the church, wicked, wicked, would get upset and they'd be run out of town. Then what am I going to do? I don't have a steady paycheck. Wicked, the way of Balaam. Then you've got the doctrine of Balaam mentioned here in Revelation chapter 2. This is the fruition of a wrong perspective concerning God's truth and pragmatism, a wrong perspective concerning God's call on the life of a a prophet or a preacher or, 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 or one called to ministry. The fruition is the doctrine of Balaam using the world to achieve one's end in ministry. Balaam's end was to profit, was to see Israel cursed. He couldn't use God's Word to do it, so he used the world to do it. Enticed them to sin, to try to force God's hand and curse them. Isn't that what is done today here in America? The world is used to achieve someone's end in ministry. We want church growth. Church growth is a good thing. We don't think we can get it by preaching God's truth. So we'll use the world to fill our pews. You know, the church is supposed to be a gathering of of regenerate, baptized believers. But in America today, it's a heterogeneous mixture of lost and saved people. And just like Liberty University, we think we'll allow the lost to come in here and we'll influence them and change them for Christ. It never happens that way. The lost take over the campus and they end up perverting the entire place. That's why you have all this wickedness that goes on on that campus that was recently reported about, but went on in my day. The doctrine of Balaam, very, very dangerous. And we don't know exactly what Israel did there in the matter of Baal Peor. Psalms 106, verse 28 talks about them eating the sacrifices of the dead. The imagery portrayed there when Phineas got up with that javelin was of a public orgy in the sight of those weeping over the sin of the people. I do know that in those days, the pagan religions involved all of this wicked fornication and temple sex rites and all of these things. Disgusting. It involved things sacrificed to idols, fornication. What's being referred to here at the church at Pergamos. Revelation 2 talks about the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. That doctrine, using the world, the, the world to achieve one's end in ministry, is a stumbling block to the church. These people, these false teachers, these false churches aren't benefiting anyone. They're casting a stumbling block. To eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. That's what took place at Bel Peor. 
And in a spiritual sense, that's what takes place in the church when the doctrine of Balaam is tolerated. You know, somehow this sin that was being tolerated, this teaching involved things sacrificed unto idols. In my mind, I think of today, I think of worldly programs in the church. A gospel devoid of repentance. Fleshly worship. Church growth strategies modeled after businesses instead of the simplicity of the New Testament. Fancy technology. Most U.S. United States youth groups. That's what comes to my mind when I think of things sacrificed unto idols. And yes, the idol in America is... His skin is green. Made out of paper. It's the almighty dollar. There's plenty of idolatry here. Somehow, this sin involves things sacrificed unto idols and it involves fornication. Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines fornication as incontinence or lewdness of unmarried persons or criminal, the criminal conversation of a married man with an unmarried woman. Wow. My, my, my how things have changed. God doesn't change. I think, when I think of spiritual fornication in the church, I think of open sin as if it's okay. I think of this Jesus, this, this worldly Jesus that people are committing spiritual fornication with when they preach Him. and He looks nothing like the Jesus of the Bible. I think of the divorce rate in the church today, greater than 50% in the church. I think of immodesty that ro- runs rampant in the church. Flesh everywhere you go in the typical church building. And it's okay. I think about those who... Act one way on a Sunday morning, pastors included, but during the week they're all caught up in the world and everything's so mixed with the world you can't tell what is ministry and what is uh, entertainment. You can't tell anymore. These are the images that come to mind. Spiritual fornication. Turning away from God's clear revelation and building a God in our mind to suit our own lust and pleasures, and using the God of the Bible's revelation in such a way to strengthen this idolatry. Satan's tactics. What does Satan use against the church? Well, he uses intimidation. He's the author of persecution. Those that stand firm, he'll come after you. You go to some of these other countries... Where, where men and women are involved in all sorts of devilry and idolatrous religion and ritual. and Satan uses intimidation in a way we don't see here. You see all kinds of crazy things. People are in fear. But Satan has another tactic. It's called deception. And that seems to be his primary weapon here in America. You know, He achieved a great victory in America when he convinced the population he doesn't even exist. No one believes in me anymore. That's great. When intimidation doesn't work with the church, the father of lies will use deception. Intimidation did not work at Smyrna. Christ didn't even have an indictment against them. So what happens? Satan turns to the art of deception. And that begins with the toleration of sin and false teaching. And history plays this out. When Constantine came to the throne and made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, everything changed. Oh, God still had His remnant. He still had witnesses, nonconformists, who would not conform to the state church. But where the state church was concerned, thus began spiritual fornication. 
and the, and the history of the Christian church would no longer, in terms of what the Bible defines as a church, would no longer be the mainstream. It would be that trail of blood. It would be the remnant body. Mainstream would be spiritual fornicators. Danger, danger, danger. Tolerations of the church in one generation become its ministries, its preaching in the next. What was the other sin being tolerated at the church of Pergamos? It was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. I already talked about that back earlier in the chapter when we read the message to the church at Ephesus. One of the things that God, Christ commended Ephesus for is that they hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I, Jesus said, also hate. Remember how I shared that that word Nicolaitan comes from Nico and laity in the Greek language and means to conquer the people? It was this division, this spiritual hierarchy that came from that old Gnostic heresy, that came from the Babylonian paganism, that lifted up clergy over the average people. You see it in all the world's religion where the priests are these mediators and are these vicars of higher powers. I was reading a book about a missionary to Tibet in the 1920s and everybody thinks how Tibetan Buddhism is so fancy and tranquil and glorious. And they talk about how what a terrible thing it is that the Chinese communists have overtaken Tibet, free Tibet, saved Tibet. And when you read about what took place in Tibet under the Buddhist Dalai Lama and under the Buddhist priesthood in the 20s and 30s, I can't help but think that in many ways the Chinese communists liberated the Tibetan people from their priesthood. That's how wicked that division between clergy and laity is in man-made religion. And Christ hates that. What was hated at Ephesus, however, was being embraced at Pergamos. The deeds of the Nicolaitans that Ephesus hated became the doctrine of the Nicolaitans at Pergamos that was being tolerated. I think of Diotrephes, that wicked pastor mentioned in 3 John, who was lording over God's heritage. Not a servant selected or affirmed by the people as the pattern of the New Testament church is revealed, but a lord over God's heritage. I think about that as an example. This was becoming tolerated in the church at Pergamos. A division between average believers and the clergy. When God's Word teaches that what differentiates the Gospel and New Testament Christianity from man-made religion is that is the priesthood of the believer. All of us are priests, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. There's no division. There's no hierarchy. We hold each other accountable. Everyone is important and useful to God's kingdom. Not to be under the thumb of some preacher who sets himself up as a pope in his own little kingdom. That's what happens in Nicolaitanism. Christ does hate, we see here in verse 15, which things I hate. I know the world and the emergent church and Rick Warren can't handle that truth, but God does hate. This little verse here that says, which thing I hate, is part of what I like to call the unknown Bible. 
It's about 200 verses or passages in the New Testament that never, or in the, whole, in the whole Bible, excuse me, that never get preached. They never get expounded upon. They're just conveniently avoided because they don't fit the mindset of our feel-good churchianity. This is one of them. This is part of that unknown Bible. Which things I, Jesus, hate. Jesus does hate. He does have righteous hatred. I think about recently that Twitter message that Rick Warren put out saying, let's pray today for the Cardinals as they try to select a new leader for their church. Think about how wicked that is and some people say, well, how dare you? How very dare you? The Bible says in Proverbs that when a man turns his ear away from God's truth, even his prayers are an abomination. That prayer was an abomination against God because it ignored God's revelation. These teachings, these programs that may speak some aspects of God's truth after the example of Balaam are an abomination to him. These hierarchies in the church where people look to men as the authority and not God's Word. Christ hates that. What does He tell them to do in verse 16? Repent, or else I will come unto you quickly and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Or no, I'm sorry. Repent, or else I will come unto thee, the remnant, quickly, and I will fight against them, the false ones being tolerated in the church, with the sword of my mouth. The imagery here is repent and take care of the problem, or I will, says the Lord. You know, God, another thing that differentiates New Testament Christianity from worldly religion is that God gives the Christian an opportunity for self-judgment before He chastises. The gods of men, they don't warn their people. They just do whatever they feel like doing. If they want to destroy somebody for no reason, okay, no big deal. That's what the Hindu gods and goddesses do in their mythology. But God never sends judgment without warning. That's written there in the prophets. And where the church is concerned, God gives us an opportunity for self-judgment before He intervenes. And that's what's being given here to the church at Pergamos. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There was sin concerning the Lord's Supper at the church in Corinth. And Corinth was also tolerating sin. I believe it involved a, a man who was having a sexual relationship with his father's wife. And Paul wrote them in chapter 11, verse 31, says, If we would judge ourselves, what we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastised of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the Lord, world. Self-judgment. Acknowledgement. Acknowledgement of our sin. That's Repentance. Jeremiah defines repentance in the Old Testament. He tells Israel, only acknowledge your sin before you, before me and I'll make you clean. God allows us self-judgment. That means to recognize the sin and deal with it before He enters in and chastises Himself. That's what Christ was telling Pergamos. Take care of the problem. I'm giving you an opportunity to recognize the problem, to deal with it, or I'm going to come in and do it myself against the false teachers, but that would ultimately affect the testimony of the true believers. We don't want God's chastisement if we can avoid it. We're better off judging ourselves. Because God's chastisement, though good, though purifying for the child of God, 
can create a whole lot of problems. I'm sure David would have rather judged himself and not committed that sin with Bathsheba as he sat there lusting on his rooftop than to have to see the sword not depart from his house for the rest of his life. The destruction of false teachers at Pergamos and these false converts would be disciplined for the remnant. Notice how Christ doesn't fight against His own. He chastises Him. He fights against wickedness and will do so with the sword of His mouth at Armageddon and He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. But He chastises His own. If we be without chastisement in our lives as Christians, the Bible says we're spiritual bastards. These people that seem to prosper day in and day out and claim to be Christians and, 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 and sow lies and untruth and never seem to have any chastisement, we can't understand it. Uh, don't understand why the good man dies, the bad man thrives. We don't understand that. Well, to be without chastisement from the Lord is evidence of apostasy. It's evidence of reprobation. And no one's without God's judgment. Whether it happens today or a thousand years from now, as Peter says, it's sure. It is sure. What does it mean to repent? I like looking in Webster's 1828 dictionary. It's just interesting. Repent is to sorrow or be pained for sin. As a violation of God's holy law, a dishonor to His character and government, and the foulest ingratitude to a being of infinite benevolence. Not worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is shedding a few tears because you got caught. Repentance is sorrow over sin. Just like Moses and the elders at the door of the tabernacle were weeping because of that sin at Baal Peor. Repentance necessitates action. If we are tolerating sin, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6, not to be unequally yoked. And by the way, that's anything that unites a child of God and an unbeliever in a common purpose, not just marriage or dating. I don't know where people came up with that being the only application there. Anything that unites a child of God and an unbeliever in a common purpose is being unequally yoked. It's the sin of Pergamos. And to repent is to acknowledge it and to cease the relationship. That's what the remnant was being called to do. We are being called to cut ties from a spiritual perspective with those sowing lies and false teaching. The doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans in our churches or in our lives. That's not popular. The church of the day says, open the doors wide, bring anybody in, and let's have a party. And we'll win them to Christ. Oh, they're one to quote-unquote Christ, but the Christ is that other Jesus Paul preached about. Not the one of the Bible. Deal with the problem or else I will. That's Christ's messages to the church today. It's a message to us. Deal with these problems or I will. You know, wouldn't it be nice... If I, if I were involved in something as a teenager per se and my parents came and said, you deal with the problem where I will. I, I'd rather deal with it. I don't want to be grounded. I don't want to lose my driving privileges. What a testimony of God's mercy. But not to say we're going to deal with it, but to actually do it. Not to be like Corinth who said, okay, I'm going to take up these offerings and we're going to support these poor believers. And then they sat on it for years, man, if I could count the number of so-called people that came to me and said, God told me to support your ministry and I'm going to do it and then I never ever saw any evidence of that. I mean, that happens time and time again. I know a lot of missionaries have seen that. That's like Corinth. 
Paul said, it's time for you to start doing what you said you were going to do. It's time for us to actually do what God has given us the opportunity to do in terms of repentance. Repenting for the sin of toleration. I've been guilty of many things in my own relationships. Things that I'll preach on the streets or at the college campuses that I'll preach against, that I'll preach against from the pulpits. I'll see them clearly in the lives of people claiming to be Christians who are dear friends and I won't say anything. I give people the benefit of the doubt and I tolerate it. That's not real love anyway. That's concealment. That's dissimulation. And it produces all sorts of problems. I can think of situations where God gave me time and time again to use self-judgment. And I didn't, so He dealt with a problem. There was a situation recently in my life where I had time, opportunity for self-judgment. Didn't do it. God dealt with it. It negatively... He didn't deal with me in terms of fighting against me. But He dealt with it and affected me. Same thing here at the church at Pergamos. Verse 17. I get flipping all over my Bible here and pages are falling out. The binding's coming undone. I just don't want to get rid of this Bible. So many notes in here in the margins. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that received it. Like as in the other letters to the churches, we following a commendation or an indictment, we have an invocation and a blessing. To him that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This message goes beyond that local body in Pergamos. It's to all who will hear. He that overcomes... Who are the overcomers? Not special, super spiritual Christians. Not little old ladies who are so spiritual they can't do nothing but go live on a mission field somewhere. The overcomers are genuine believers. Who is he that overcometh, John says, 1 John 5, but he that believes Christ Jesus is the Son of God. True Christians overcome. False Christians play the part and then go back to the world. They went out of us because they were not of us, John says. Hidden manna. What is hidden manna here? I think of spiritual food. Spiritual food. What is spiritual food to the believer? God's Word. So if God or Christ gives unto us the hidden manna, He gives us an understanding of the deep mysteries of God's Word. Spiritual food. Versus a famine for hearing the Word of God. In the days of Israel, when they were prosperous and affluent and successful from the world's perspective during the reign of King Jeroboam II, God sent Amos the prophet, a fruit picker, to decry against the sin of the people and remind them that they weren't as secure as they thought they were there in Samaria. And in the course of those prophecies, God said in Amos chapter 11 that the days would come You ought to be thankful my prophet is here preaching the Word of God, even though you don't like it. Because the day is coming when I'm going to send a famine to this land. Not famine for food or water, but a famine for hearing the words of the Lord. How destitute we would be, we would be if we had to run to and fro to every corner of the earth, seeking the Word of the Lord and not being able to find it. To them that overcome, Christ gives the spiritual food, the spiritual manna, an understanding of His Word. We ought to seek that. Thankfully, in these days of grace, the Word is very nigh unto us, the Bible says. You don't have to climb up to heaven or 
dig down to hell to find it. The Word is very nigh unto thee. That's the Gospel Paul talks about. What a blessing from God to have not only His Word but understanding which comes from the Holy Spirit. And to them that overcome, will get, they will eat of this hidden manna. Full understanding. Many things we can't understand now in eternity, those mysteries will be revealed. And we'll see God's divine hand of providence and worship Him all the more. Hidden manna, spiritual food from God as opposed to famine for hearing the Word of God. As opposed to strong delusion to believe a lie. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Bible talks about the coming of the man of sin in those days of tribulation after God raptures His church. And he talks about those whom have rejected God's gospel. Not naively, but purposely. Confronted, confronted with the truth only to reject it. And we think of people, you know, all... You know, if these people don't get saved now, you know, after the rapture, you know, everybody will, you know, know what's going on. Everybody will turn to Christ. No. God says to those, He'll send a lie. Strong delusion that they would believe a lie. Just like God did in the days of Ahab the king. When Ahab and Jehoshaphat were trying to determine whether they should go up to Ramoth Gilead and fight against the enemies of their nations. And all of these false prophets came before the kings and said, God has said, go up, you will prosper. Well, Jehoshaphat knew something wasn't right. He feared the Lord in Judah. He said, don't we have a prophet of the Lord here that can give us something a little more clear? And Ahab said, well, yeah, there is one, Micaiah, but I hate him because he never says anything positive about me. I hate him. So they brought him. And they said, Micaiah, what, what should we do? He said, go up and be prosperous. And he spoke to them in agreement with all those false teachers. And then Ahab got mad and said, I know you're not speaking the truth. I demand, I abjure you to tell me the whole truth. And Micaiah says, okay, I'll tell you what's really going on here. I saw the Lord on His throne and all the hosts of heaven at His right and left. And the Lord asked, who shall go for me and convince Ahab to go up in battle. And it says a lying spirit came to the Lord and said, let me go, I will entice him. I will make him think he will prosper. And God said, go. And so, God allowed these wicked men to believe a lie. And then He showed them the truth of it. He revealed to them what had taken place and they still did it anyway. God will cause those that reject His Word now to believe a lie. Those that are banking on living in sin and enjoying those pleasures now and thinking, well, if Christ does come back, I'll get right when I see the church gone and these prophecies fulfilled, then I'll get right. No, you won't. You'll bow down at the feet of Antichrist. Some of you preachers behind the pulpit here in America, you'll bow down at His feet. You'll take the rewards of divination as did Balaam. But praise God for the hidden manna. Not famine, not delusion. To those that follow God, fear Him and stand firm, He'll give us understanding. And He'll bring His Word to pass. It also says, I will give Him a white stone. A white stone. What, what, what is this talking about? It's interesting because in the ancient courts, if a man was acquitted of a crime, he would be handed a white stone. And that was evidence of his acquittal. If he was to be condemned, he was handed a black stone. 
In Christ Jesus, we are acquitted of all charges. We are acquitted of all charges. We are acquitted of the handwriting of ordinances which was made against us. Those that are under God's law are under the curse, but Christ became a curse for us that we might be redeemed and acquitted from the curse of the law. He is our high priest. Hebrews 4, Hebrews 7. We're acquitted. Wow. To the remnant body, there's acquittal, not judgment. That's why I say if I were to stand before God today and He should ask me why I should come into His kingdom, I can't think of anything to say. Just two words. A salutation per se. An expression of gratitude. Thank you. That's all I would know to say. Also on that stone is a new name. The personal heritage of the glories beyond this world and assurance of salvation. I don't understand exactly what that means, but I do know this in eternity, despite the great numbers of God's saints, no one will be lost in the masses. No one will be lost in the crowd. Each person will have their own special identity. Dwelling in perfect unity. I always marvel when I read the 16th chapter of Romans because there's this whole list of names that Paul puts in there. People to greet in these house churches or that church or this person. Seemingly insignificant folks that never show up in history or never appear elsewhere in the Word of God. And what that list of believers there in Romans 16 is, is a demonstration that average believers had a place in the Word of God. It flies in the face of Nicolaitan heresy. Even average believers, even you with your job and your daily life that may not be on the far corners of the globe have a place in God's plan and purpose. You have, they, they, those such as yourselves had a place in the Word of God. Their names are preserved in the Word of God. And those who are faithful in what God gives them, even though it may not be open-air preaching or labor at the far end of the globe, have a personal heritage if they will be faithful. You'll never be lost in the masses in eternity like so many are lost in the crowds of these megachurches. Won't happen. Praise God for that. To those who overcome. Well, what do we have at Pergamos? We had a local church in John's day where the remnant was tolerating false doctrine and apostasy. One of their leaders, Antipas, had stood up. Antipas, the whole world is against you. Well, the whole world is against me then. He stood up as an example openly when others were dissimulating. Oh, they were true. They were holding fast. They weren't believing these things, but they were tolerating it. Located in a satanic stronghold where false teaching and idolatry was rampant. It's also a type of tolerant churches at all times during the church age. And boy, do we have a lot of those today. Tolerant churches made up of true and false believers. As I mentioned earlier, that is a dangerous place to be. For hidden leaven quickly leavens all. And you'll see that in the message to the church at Thyatira. What is being tolerated here at Pergamos is preached at Thyatira. Jesus told a parable in Matthew chapter 13. He said, The kingdom of God is like a woman who took a little leaven and sowed it into three measures of meal. And before you know it, the whole lump was leavened. That's a picture 
of false teaching and corruption that takes a small foothold in the kingdom of God, which is revealed in His church, spiritually speaking, this day and time. And that little seed that seems so insignificant corrupts the entire body. Jesus also spoke of this concept in terms of wheat and the tares. Don't go in there. It gets to the place where if you go in there and try to tear up the tares, you're going to tear up the wheat also. So let them both grow into the harvest. And then God will divide the wheat from the tares. True and false believers do exist. And false believers are always in the majority. People claim in the name of Christ who have never been generally born again. And church history pays testimony to this. Many are called, Jesus said, Matthew 22, 14, few are chosen. And it's a dangerous place to be when a church opens its door and is full of the unregenerate. And they dictate the lives and lives and ministries of those truly born again. A tolerant church. So it's, it was a church in John's day. It's a type of tolerant churches. And, man, I wish I could go. I've got one, two, three, four... Five, six, seven th- pages of things from history that show this to be a prophetic foreview of the church age. Written beforehand, but played out through the quarters of history. And we couldn't possibly see it unless we were on this side of it. This description of Pergamos is remarkably parallel to the church or to Christendom after Constantine's Edict of Milan in AD 312 when the church became settled in the Roman Empire. It went from a state of persecution to a place of favoritism. And this Pergamos church period goes down from Constantine's edict of toleration to the accession in uh, AD 607 of Pope Boniface III. And when Boniface took the position of the Bishop of Rome, the Roman Empire had already fallen... The Roman bishops just slid right in there and filled the gap where the emperors weren't. Constantine moved the seat of the empire to Constantinople, modern-day Turkey, and shifted Roman power to the east. There was a power vacuum. And when the Vandals sacked the city of Rome and Rome fell, there was the bishop of Rome to slide right in there and fill the power vacuum. So the Roman emperors became the Roman popes. And Roman Catholicism became the ultimate fruition of the spirit of Babylonian paganism, all in the name of Christ. But not the real Christ. In 607, Pope Boniface III was able to secure a decree from Emperor Phocas, who was the Byzantine Empire in the East, that, quote, the see of blessed Peter the Apostle should be the head of all churches. And Boniface III was declared the universal bishop the vicar of Christ over all the churches. So by A.D. 606, we see Nicolaitanism in its fullness. In its fullness. Down through those centuries, I could talk about the first century in the church could be described as proliferation. The gospel going out, churches multiplying. The truth of God's Word turning the world upside down. In the second century, we had persecution. Church at Smyrna. The believers were involved in persistent preaching, gospel exclusiveness, congregational life. And the blood of the martyrs was the seat of the church. But then we get to the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries. The church at Pergamos. 4th century can be described with one word, Constantine. Profound changes from the church to the church. 5th century, corruption. 
in the 6th century consolidation of all that corruption into one fork-tongued, double-headed monster. Errors that began to rise in the early centuries of the church. Gnosticism, which was the mixing of Christianity with Greek philosophy. The Nicolaitan heresies in the first century, there were no clergy in the churches. It was pastors and deacons, both servants, according to the New Testament, and the congregations. By the second century, you had the clergy being lifted up above the laity. In the third century, you had the clergy being divided into ranks. And by the fourth century, you had a supreme head of the church that was not Jesus Christ. It was Constantine, who functionally was the first pope. Because the latter popes who took that seat of the Roman emperor looked just like him. Pontifex Maximus. You had the Nicolaitan era. You had ceremonials began to be paired with salvation. The lies of baptismal regeneration. You know, the fact that baptism washes away your sin. This led to infant baptism, which would become law thanks to men like Augustine and others in this Pergamus church period. You had clinic baptism. The idea of baptism washes away sins, so I'm going to wait to the last possible moment before my death and get baptized, and then I don't want to worry about going to hell. That's what Constantine did. He did not receive baptism until A.D. 337, right before his death. He wanted to make sure he was clean before he died. Baptismal regeneration led to infant baptism. The first recorded infant baptism was in A.D. 370. It was the son of the emperor Valens, the Roman emperor Valens. His son was sick. And he waited to just before he died to baptism, clinic baptism. These messed up views of baptism would lead to the martyrdom of more than 50 million Bible-believing Christians during the devil's millennium, A.D. 500 to 1500, the Dark Ages. Our founding spiritual forefathers, those old remnant bodies, they were called by many names. They practiced believers' baptism, and that led to more bloodshed than any other issue. Our Anabaptist forefather, that's why I'm a Baptist. Baptistic in my faith, not because I belong to some church on a street corner, but because I believe that the Baptistic faith is the New Testament faith. And that views baptism as a memorial, a commemoration, an outward declaration of an inward change, and it's for the regenerate. It's not for a baby. It's not to wash away sins. Only Christ can do that. Then all of these errors came together and you had the wedding of the church to the state with the Edict of Milan. Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire and this opened the door to all sorts of perversion. The church became the conquering force for the Bible-believing Christians. Another arm of persecution arose. You see, with Constantine, prior Constantine, the church's enemies were the Judaizers and the pagans. But with Constantine, there was another enemy added to that list, the state church. The state church became a persecutor of Bible-believing Christians. Of course, this new state church needed scriptural support to justify its theonomy, or its government, or its ruling over the world, or its idea that we're going to take over the world and usher in the kingdom. It needed scriptural support. Where did it turn? Did it turn to the New Testament for the New Testament order on the church? No, it turned to the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. So in other words, the Old Testament priesthood 
was seen as justification for New Testament Nicolaitanism. The Old Testament nation of Israel was twisted and seen as the justification for New Testament Catholicism, this idea of this Christian nation, this universal church. Anytime the word church or churches is used in the New Testament, it's always referring to a local body, not some universal mystical concept. Old Testament circumcision was seen as justification for New Testament infant baptism. The Old Testament Passover was seen as justification for the New Testament Eucharist. Old Testament ritual for New Testament liturgy. And Old Testament Israel was seen as the New Testament church. When the church married the state, and the church was put in in its power and influence beginning with Constantine, that wicked spirit of Balaam deceived people into thinking that God had cast off His people Israel. And that the prophecies of Israel's future glory must not apply to them, it must apply to the church. We're the new Israel. And from this point on, those wicked post-millennial and all-millennial views concerning the coming of Christ began to take feet, take foot, a foothold. The church will go, grow in power and influence and usher in the golden age. And that is the worldview of the Catholic Church. It was the worldview of a lot of the Protestant churches that were formed from the Reformation. Praise God. A lot of those Protestant churches persecuted nonconformists, people that looked very Baptistic. When it comes to the order and the setup of the church, the New Testament is the final authority. Israel's government has nothing to do with the New Testament's church order. And that mistake was made. And so you have all of these errors taking root. Rome was a sacralist society. Its religion supported the government and the government enforced the religion. With Constantine, Christianity became the official religion of the empire. So the religion was supported by the government and the government would enforce enforce that religion. Persecution led to favoritism. Settlement in the world. Persecution had maintained a check on doctoral deviation and corruption. Now the floodgates were wide open. You see, Constantine saw that mysterious growth of the church during the periods of persecution. And he wanted this for his empire. I want the spiritual power of Christianity with the temporal power of Rome. Give us your spiritual power. We will give you our temporal power, said Constantine. Marriage to the world. Wicked. Profound changes took place. Christianity, as I said, became a state religion. There was just a change in religion. Official religion of Rome was paganism, became Christianity. Church became a political force, something we're not to be. Catholic pastors became paid by the state instead of being taken care of by their flocks. Churches began to be filled with unbelievers. A new official Bible was produced. Man, that's an interesting story. A lot of these modern Bibles that twist the Word of God are based on manuscripts that go back to Constantine's day where he ordered Eusebius of Caesarea to prepare and put together these 50 official Bibles of his new religion. One of those Bibles is the Codex Vaticanus, which is housed in the Vatican. And it's used to justify a lot of these perverted readings in modern Bibles today. One of these official state church Bibles. The other famous manuscript that's supposed to be earlier and more superior to the King James manuscript tradition is Codex Sinaiticus, which was a copy of one of these official Bibles. There's three places we're never to look 
for God's truth, if you read all of God's Bible, Babylon, Egypt, and Rome. Those are places we ought to be very careful about. And yet all these, this modern biblical scholarship is based on these official Bibles of Constantine. I wish I could get more into that. Christianity became the state religion and it was wedded to paganism. Unbelieving pagans came into the churches to comply with Constantine's compulsion and they brought their beliefs and practices with them. Tolerant churches wishing to accommodate these Christianized pagan, these, these new members Christianized those pagan practices. And, of course, in Rome, they had the Mother of Heaven uh, uh, deified child image of Fortuna and Jupiter, and then it just became Mary and Jesus under the state church. Then another thing happened. As I said before, the church became an instrument in the persecution of those who would not conform to the state, but to the New Testament. Three enemies now. Man, there were some notable events throughout this time. I wish I could summarize them. Council of Nicaea, AD 325, was the first ecumenical council. 1,500 delegates. The laymen outnumbered the bishops five to one. Constantine came in adorned with gold and gemstones, and he was described as not unlike an angel of God. I think of Herod there in Acts chapter 12, eaten of worms because he gave God not the glory. All of these bishops and laymen from around the empire brought their private disputes and they wanted to have them settled. And it said in symbolic fashion that Constantine took all of these disputes and burned them before the crowd and proclaimed, we want reconciliation, harmony, and unity. There was a debate in this council between whether about concerning Christ's nature. Was He homoousios, of the same essence of God the Father? Or was He homoousios, similar to God's essence, but different? Or was He heterousios, totally different? The majority position in this council, which, didn't recognize, which did not involve nonconformists who stuck to the New Testament, but the prevailing opinion was that Christ was of like essence to the Father, but not the same. Orthodoxy got a victory. The position that Christ was of the same essence of the Father was a minority position. And it was declared by Constantine as a fiat. I don't care what you people think. This is the decision. So it was a victory for orthodoxy. Jesus is of the same essence of God. That's not because Nicaea declared it. It's written here. It was a victory. It was good. And everybody looks to that in church history. But it was dangerous. It was dangerous because it made the determination of the Christian faith dependent upon an imperial decree and court intrigue. There's a lot of things that look good, but we don't think about the implications. Oh, it'd be a great thing to shut up the Westboro Baptist Church people, to force them to shut up, but the, that's dangerous because it'll lead to us being silenced. Yeah, there were great things during the period of the Civil War, and I'm glad slavery has ceased to exist in this country, and but Lincoln did some wonderful things, but what he did was dangerous because it involved using power that the Constitution didn't give him. And from that day forward, it's no longer the United States are, it's the United States is. And now we have a federal government dictating what the states should and shouldn't do and take away the state, from the states their freedom to follow the teachings of our founding fathers. Wicked. Sometimes a victory for God's truth is really a defeat when you think about it. Or what we see as a victory. You had these uh, 
50 official Bibles um, produced. Three thirty-seven, Constantine's Clinic baptism before his death. Three seventy, the first recorded instance of infant baptism. And three ninety-seven, at the Council of Carthage, baptism was said to wash away sins. The act or ritual of baptism was said to wash away sins. Man, I could, I wish I could get started concerning Augustine, who is viewed as this great hero of the faith, and he did preach a lot of truth when it came to salvation. But in other ways, he could be considered the father of corrupt theology. His work, The City of God, was influential in the development of post-millennial theology and this idea that the church had replaced Israel. Very dangerous. He was a champion of the universal Catholic church. He hated the Donatists, who in his time were Bible believers that refused to conform to the state church and, and, and practice believers' baptism. And he approved persecution against those groups. Um, Council of Carthage in 401, it was Canon 76, said children ought to be baptized. Council of Mila, 416, infant baptism became law. Council of Ephesus, 431, it formally ascribed primacy over the state church to the Bishop of Rome, who would later become the Pope. It declared that any belief in a literal millennial reign of Christ was a superstitious aberration. These are official, quote-unquote, state church councils. It venerated Mary. This is where Mariology began. This idea of the Theotokos, the mother of God. This early Mariolatry started in Ephesus where Mary supposedly spent her last days under John's care. And it's funny because Ephesus is the place where the light and life-dispensing virgin Diana was worshipped. Great as Diana of the Ephesians. Remember that in Paul's missionary journeys? Dianolatry became Mariolatry. Leo I in 440 became the first formal pope. He was a politician and a statesman. Council of Ephesus, number 2 in 449, the veneration of Mary was further inscribed. This council was also called the Robber's Synod. If you read about what went on there and you think these people actually represented a church, you got a psychosis problem. Council of Chalcedon, 451, Complete anarchy. Leo I declared that the Bishop of Rome was the successor of Peter and the Vicar of Christ. 476, the fall of Rome. The Pope filled the power vacuum. Roman Emperor became Roman Pope. 496, the conversion of Clovis, the King of the Franks. Like Constantine, he was facing a battle. He saw a sign and said, okay, I'll believe in this Christian God if He gives me victory. 3,000 of his men were baptized on December 25th, Christmas Day. 496, and thereafter the sword became a tool in the hand of the church. And that led to the formation of the Holy Roman Empire. Holy Roman Empire in history. It wasn't holy, it wasn't Roman, and it wasn't an empire. Funny. Interesting to study. Gregory I, 590-604, was considered or gained recognition as the universal bishop of Christendom. He advocated and taught celibacy for all the priests, established a doctrine of purgatory, Affirm that baptism, the ritual, washes away original sin. And so that babies needed to be baptized because they're born with original sin, so just dip them in the water or sprinkle water on them and it'll wash it away. He gained the Bishop of Rome recognition as head over the whole church and then with Boniface III in 607, this decree came from the Byzantine Emperor and the Pope was officially declared 
universal bishop. So you see the progression down through here? You see how this period of history fits what is said here to the church at Pergamos? Toleration, toleration, toleration. And then from 607 on to the Reformation, you have the devil's millennium. And what took place during that period in the name of Christ is so wicked, it makes my skin crawl. But God always has a remnant. All of these things happening, God was warning His remnant. Christ was warning His remnant. And there were nonconformists. We must be nonconformist when it comes to the state church and false doctrine and even the government in this country. In the second centuries, you had the Montanists. Your typical church history book refers to them as heretics. They weren't heretics. They were Bible believers. They took a stand for church purity, for the priesthood of the believer against this developing Nicolaitan doctrine. In the third century, you had the Novatians. They emphasized church discipline. Something is not done today. If we practice church discipline today, which we have in this church, then we're just like the Novatians of old. Many people would consider us heretics. The 4th century, the Donatists, they believed that ecclesiastical authority came from Christ and that churches were autonomous and independent. All of these groups were called as early as the 2nd century Anabaptists. That means they, they practiced believers' baptism and rejected infant baptism. A lot of these groups would be driven out of their homes and migrate to other places. They'd pop up in the east and were called Paulicans. And these groups were well known by the time of Boniface III. Christ always has His remnant. That remnant seems small and it's washed away in a trail of blood in history. And these letters to the churches describe or prophetically foreview the mainstream. But behind all of that, God has His remnant. It may be a trail of blood and it may be hard to find. But that's the heritage I want. Not famous. I'm content to be a nobody for Jesus Christ, even if the only thing I leave this earth is a trail of blood. But praise God that I'll be able to stand, not lost in the masses, but with a spiritual heritage in that great cloud of witnesses. Faithful, despite the pressures not only of Judaism, of the world, but of the conformist churches. And that same situation that took root with the onset of Constantine and down through those centuries, the Pergamus church period, the remnants, the fruit of it is today. And we can almost see with the church's desire to be on the good side of the American government and with the way that so many of these ministry leaders gave their efforts to politics instead of the gospel, we can see the same thing repeating itself in our country today. We have this state, unofficial American churchianity. And if you're not conformed to it, you're a preacher of hate. Or you're rude. Or you're not a Christian. Or you're a mick Christian, as I've been called. Simply because you don't conform to the prevailing mentality, but to the Word of God. Warn to those that tolerate sin, may we be faithful. Now in a couple of weeks, I know I've run late today, I really wanted to go through that. I am going to I've been praying about beginning a series of church history lectures that I'm just going to publish online. And it'll have its own podcast. I, don't, I won't be preaching this per se in front of you. And a lot of folks have uh, expressed interest. And I want to start doing that. And I'll do it as best I can, as fast as I can. But I want to give you some insight into some of this stuff. Our heritage is not the Catholic Church. And if we as Christians... Many have said if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. But when it comes to the nonconformist remnant body of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we don't know our history, we're doomed not to repeat it. We want to repeat the history of those 
who left a trail in blood because they wouldn't compromise the Word of God. That's why we need to know it. So I'm going to start that hopefully this week. I hope that will be an encouragement and supplement these studies on the book of Revelation. When I come back in a few weeks, we will look at the message to the church of Thyatira and we'll see that what was tolerated at Pergamos became mainstream. And that is clearly evident in history during the Dark Ages when the spirit of Jezebel, that wicked prophetess, was the church. It was the Roman Catholic Church. And therefore, I'll tell you, just like Dave Hunt, that preacher, I used to re- love reading his Berean call newsletters. He died last week. He was an elderly man. But I was reading the latest one that came out, and he was talking about Catholicism. Is it Christian? And he made the statement in there. He said, those that refuse to see Catholicism as a cult. And his point was, you know, you have all these cult watchers in the church today who write books on cults and they catalog them and they tell Christians how to watch out for them and all this. But it amazes him that Roman Catholicism is never mentioned in those lists. Those that refuse to see the Roman Catholic Church as other than Christian or as an occult may as well spit in the face of all those martyrs who gave their lives so that we could have a Bible in our language we understand. So that the new simplicity of the New Testament church could be preserved. We might as well spit in their face and view their sacrifices as in vain if we go right along with this spirit of ecumenism. In my opinion, when Rick Warren sequestered prayer for the choosing of a new pope, he stomped or trampled on the graves of those martyrs who gave their blood throughout history. He spit on their graves. Shame on Him. Even though His son did commit suicide, shame on Him. That's tragic. Terrible thing. It's a terrible thing that a son of a pastor felt like he had nowhere to turn. Felt like he had nowhere to go. What does that say about his church? What's that say about his leadership? Terrible. It's sad because there is a place to go. God does have non-conformist, Bible-believing remnant you can run to. But so many don't know. They've been deceived. I know it's late. I appreciate your toleration today of a long sermon. The Romanians would say, keep going. We'll just eat about 4 o'clock. But I hope this has been beneficial to you. I hope that what comes later will actually supplement these things. And I'm just a servant. I don't have all the answers. I'm trying my best. And... God forbid that I would ever say or speak anything that would go against His Word. If you ever have a question, feel free to ask. Um, uh, And I look forward to being back with you in a few weeks. And sooner or later, we'll get through these messages to the churches. And we'll get to that actual tribulation period. Okay, I'm going to close us in prayer. I'm very grateful to whoever's in the nursery for being... I think my wife is in the nursery, so she's been very patient today. I hear kids screaming. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this day. We thank You for um, this humbling message You've delivered us this morning. Lord, may we be on guard against these doctrines. Lord, may we not tolerate them. May we preach the truth in love. May we love others. May we weep for those who suffer. May we weep for those who are uh, judged or chastised by the Lord or judged by Him who suffer loss. But may we never tolerate sin, Lord. May it be our love for the lost and the wicked and the false teachers that compels us to be nonconformist and to take a stand as so many of your servants did. Antipas at Pergamos, the Donatists, the Paulicans, all of these throughout history, the Anabaptists and some of the leaders of the Reformation. 
Lord, our founding fathers and the Baptist churches in Virginia who were instrumental in ensuring our freedom of religion here in America. We just thank You for that heritage. And may we be a part of it, Lord. Not lost in the masses, but an integral part because we make Christ Jesus our head with no earthly sire. For those of us in leadership, Lord, may we not be guilty of the errors and the ways and the doctrines of Balaam. May we be servants to the church. Humble, not lording over God's heritage. Ever mindful of Your rebuke and Your chastisement. May we have repentance, not worldly sorrow. Lord, I just pray for the meal You've provided. It may strengthen us for those that are not amongst us. And we look forward to gathering again and continuing this study according to Your will. And as we do so, may we look to the heavens. May we look to the east every day waiting for Your coming. In Jesus' name, Amen.